0: Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White and you're listening to the News Roundup. Eleven. That's how many times House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has failed to become House Speaker. And while a lot of names are in the mix, right now, there's no obvious alternative. Madam Clerk,
1: I rise to nominate Hakeem Jeffries as Speaker of the House. Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House.
0: The Honorable Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received one.
2: A new face, new vision, new leadership— And I believe that face, vision, and new leadership is Byron Donald's, and I'm proud to put his name into nomination, and I yield back.
0: Congress was supposed to start governing this week, but the House has been trapped in a three-day deadlock. And until someone takes over the speakership, nothing is happening. It's the most protracted speaker election in nearly 130 years, and it comes on the one-year anniversary of the insurrection. Here to give us the latest is Akela Gardner. She's Bloomberg's White House reporter. Akela, welcome to 1A. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Benji Sarlin, Semaphore's Washington bureau chief. Benji, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Josh Meyer, the domestic security correspondent for USA Today. Josh, always great to have you. Always great to be here, Jen. Thanks. So the House meets again, and there are reports that McCarthy gave the dissenters even more concessions last night. Here he is talking to reporters.
2: No, no, I'm not putting any timeline on I just think we've got some progress going on. We've got members talking. This is a new thought we're going to have to have. We have a five-seat majority. So it's better that we go through this process right now so we can achieve the things we want to achieve for the American public, what our commitment was. So if this takes a little longer and it doesn't meet your deadline, that's okay. Because it's not how you start, it's how you finish.
0: Okay, Benji, what do we know?
2: So the latest now is that there are negotiations over a deal that they hope would bring some of these conservative holdouts on board with Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. But there is a lot of uncertainty around this deal. We still don't know all the details of what's being offered from our conversations with members. Topics include how many of the conservative holdouts and members of the House Freedom Caucus, uh, how many of them would be on key committees which is an area where many more moderate Republicans you know, get nervous. Um, there's also questions around how to approach budget negotiations, around the debt ceiling, um, rules addressing earmarks, um, votes on legislation that's important to them, like, for example, term limits. But the most discussed concession that seems to be inevitable is allowing any single Republican member to call for a vote on whether or not the speaker should remain speaker, essentially sending us right back into this whole situation all again, If they think that they don't get their way. Uh, So the common theme of all these negotiations is giving these conservative holdouts more power over the speaker, more power to set the agenda, more power over
0: committees. But it is still very far from clear any of them will take the deal. No one has publicly switched yet. Well, as you say, the, the GOP already had a very slim majority heading into this Congress, which means every member would need to be on board to make anything happen. Akela, how will concessions like the ones McCarthy make, McCarthy's making arguably make it even more difficult
3: to govern? I think that's a great point. And, and also, just as Benji mentioned, you know, Kevin McCarthy has already made this concession to essentially allow At least five members to vote for him to vacate the chair, and that will just bring the Congress back to square one. But it does speak definitely to this moment that the GOP is happening is having in terms of its identity. And really is Kevin McCarthy able to sort of rein in these members of the Freedom Caucus, some of the most conservative members. And again, this is happening all on the anniversary of January 6th. And I think it's important to note that some of the people who are amongst his biggest dissenters, also denied the 2020 election. Some asked for pardons for what happened on January 6. And so it's very much speaking to this grappling that the Republican Party is still having.
0: We got this question from William, who says, if it's only 20 Republicans preventing Kevin McCarthy from getting elected, why doesn't he try to work with Democrats instead? Josh, what do you think?
1: Well, I mean, I think that that's something that's been floated. But, um, you know, I think the Democrats have been united uh, behind Hakeem Jeffries. I think they would love to see Jeffries become the speaker. Um, And there was, I think, a a minute there where we thought that that might actually be possible. But, you know, it just shows just the complete gridlock of Congress. I mean, one of the things that's most striking to me about all of this is, you know, you hear these people referred to as congressman-elect Gates or McCarthy, I mean, they're not even lawmakers now until they're sworn in. We do, we do not have a working House of Representatives. So, you know, I think that, um, I don't think that's a realistic proposition that they would be working with Democrats. I don't think, I think the Democrats would like it, but I don't think the Republicans would stand for it. But, you know, I think that we're in complete gridlock now. I mean, the, the Speaker of the House uh, controls everything down to the temperature of the, uh, you know, how hot or cold it is on the floor of, of the House you know voting chamber. So, you know, this is an embarrassment, I think, for a democracy. And um, you know, we'll have to see what happens, and we'll have to see what McCarthy is willing to uh, to give up in order to hang on to this. But, but I think it is, um, you know, his concessions to the far right uh, could transform the way the House operates and what they get done, if
0: anything, in over the next two years. Well, Mindy, yeah, I want I want to get into sort of a procedural question. Which is, why keep voting? Why not wait until every vote is secured before going through another round? Well, that's actually
2: ended up one of the most contentious votes of all, which is, as it stands now, all Congress can really legally do is just keep voting to pick the speaker, because as mentioned, it's the prerequisite for doing anything, even swearing in members. But what they can do is vote to adjourn in order to get more time for talks. However... Democrats, who are enjoying watching the heat on Republicans, are whipping their members, do not leave. They are voting against every motion to adjourn. Meanwhile, some of the holdouts see these continued votes that just keep humiliating McCarthy and showing he doesn't have any change in support as boosting their cause and giving them more momentum. And if you want to take out McCarthy entirely and you're not interested in negotiations— That's extremely tempting to just keep having this theater playing out day and day. So what's happened repeatedly is that while Republican leaders sometimes would like to adjourn, they sometimes don't have the votes because either the holdouts or the Democrats or really a combination of them are preventing them from leaving. So every day that they actually leave the floor, just like last night after the 11th ballot, that's actually kind of a small success for Republican leaders because it is not at all guaranteed they will get permission to
0: leave. Josh, you, you talked about the effect this is having on governance and that these are, these, are, these are elected officials, but they haven't been sworn in yet. At what point does this become a national security risk?
1: Well, you know, that's a very good question, Jen. <clears throat> and, you know, I think that that has come up a little bit in these discussions. I mean, Washington, D.C., where I live, which some people like to consider uh, sort of a, a banana republic because we're beholden to the federal government, uh, a lot of the laws and things that were voted on in the in the last election uh, can't even become law. There's a lot of things that are on hold right now, including security measures, uh, you know, the security of the Capitol. Um, and so it, it is, I mean, you know... Uh, intelligence officials, law enforcement officials I've talked to say that in in times of transition from one administration to another, that is when we are most vulnerable as a country. That's when China and Russia, Iran, other countries uh, might do strategic advances, try to get their agenda uh, pushed around the, uh, around the world. And we're so busy focusing now on who's going to keep the lights on in the House of Representatives that we're, you know, I think there's a lot of people that aren't uh keeping an eye on these problems. And even if they were, there's not much the House can do about them because they're not really uh, in operation right now. Um, and I think that the longer this continues, the more that's going to be a problem.
0: Well, former President Trump pushed the far-right faction to rally around McCarthy. That's not happening. Kayla, why not?
3: I think, I will say too, it's, it's important to note that Trump has also sort of echoed something that we've heard from other Republican lawmakers, which is, you know, he says this process is healthy. Um, And I think that's a big question mark given that Republicans have known this vote was coming up um, for over a month. So they have been in these discussions um, for weeks and weeks before this date. And and what's a vote that's normally supposed to just have this normal process and is is supposed to be done with one vote? Um, But I think that these... Hardliners are trying to get attention for their platforms. They're trying to show their constituents that they're hard against Biden's administration, that they're um, firmly against government spending. Um, and they're also trying to express sort of this distrust in in the establishment. And they see McCarthy as almost a figurehead that re- represents, you know, the establishment. And so they're really trying to push sort of this anti-government sentiment. And they're getting a lot of tension for it. I mean, the whole nation is watching what's playing out. And it's, it's really mind-boggling knowing that Republicans have this majority and still aren't able to get Kevin McCarthy in that seat.
0: We got this question from Carol, who asks, if someone besides McCarthy isn't elected, will the concessions he gave still hold? Benji, what can you tell us? I mean, there's a
2: saying, what is it, on the table, in the pocket. So it certainly seems likely that if, for example, someone else had to step in, like a Steve Scalise or a Patrick McHenry, that the same holdouts going against McCarthy would likely say, okay, here's the starting point, you just give us the same deal. Um, I find it probably unlikely that they would back down on any of that. Now, if there continues to be a struggle around this, It's not impossible. It's extremely unlikely, but not impossible that you could see Democrats lend votes to a moderate Republican speaker, in which case all bets are off.
0: We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. And remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Pop app and leave us a voicemail. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Stephen shared his thoughts about the fight for House Speaker. Democrats have the opportunity to join with Republican moderates to choose a moderate Republican speaker. While well, President Biden has called the whole thing an embarrassment. He had several public events this week, including a joint event with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. What does it say, Benji, that the top Republican in the Senate is publicly appearing with the Democratic president while the House GOP is in such turmoil? It's not something you normally associate McConnell with,
2: right? Bipartisanship. For years, he was the face of obstruction to a Democratic agenda. But it is interesting that the last couple of years in particular were actually a strange kind of renaissance of bipartisan deal making, including the infrastructure bill, which McConnell backed. That they were celebrating uh, in Kentucky. Now, the reasons for that were a little specific and strategic, and some Republicans and Democrats we've talked to in the Senate don't think they're likely to carry forward over there. But it it is true that under McConnell and Schumer's joint leadership, the Senate's been unusually
0: productive lately. It's been it's been. It's not something a lot of people expected heading into Biden's presidency. One thing that's interesting about these these sorts of conflicts is that it gives us a chance to answer a lot of questions people have about how Congress works. We got this question from a listener who says, since these candidates elect have not been sworn in, it appears they, have not, they are not yet legit members of Congress. Can you explain why they even get to vote on Speaker? Benji, I think I'm going to come to you on this one. That's what the Constitution says.
2: <laughs> it's uh, it, it says they convene and they come and choose a speaker and officers and that's what they're going to do. Uh, they've been elected. The elections have been certified. The qualifications are there.
0: But until they're sworn in, they are correct. They can't do any other business. And then we got this final question from Michael who asks, with no representative sworn in, can anyone in the House vote to change the speaker election rules? Akela,
3: I think, you know, I think That's just not the case. What's clear is that the only thing that they can do at this point is just to continue and continue voting for speaker. And so uh, until that's done, there's just major questions around what Congress can do in the coming weeks. And, you know, some members have even expressed they're not even sure if they have clearance to view classified information. Um, And as we discussed earlier, that could have major national security um, implications. And so luckily we haven't seen any major issues in in the past couple days. But should something arise, these congressional members need that authorization. They need to be sworn in so that we can have a functioning government.
0: So in just a sentence from each of you, I want to hear what you think this fight for House Speaker means for this session of Congress. Benji, I'll come to you first. In a word, chaos.
1: Josh? Uh, Yeah. I mean, they can't even move into their new offices. So uh, I would say just complete gridlock.
3: Akela, what about you? I think foreshadowing, I think it could say a lot about what we could see over the next two years, especially in the House, and whether or not bills can actually come out of that chamber.
0: Well, let's turn now to President Biden. He addressed the growing immigration crisis on Thursday.
2: We should all recognize that as long as America is the land of freedom and opportunity, people are going to try to come here. And that's what many of our ancestors did. And it's no surprise that it's happening again today. We can't stop people from making the journey. But we can require them to come here, they, that
4: they come here in an orderly way under U.S. law.
0: Biden says he'll travel to El Paso Sunday. The border town has seen up to 2,500 migrant cro- crossings a day. That's according to the Department of Homeland Security. And this prompted the mayor to declare a state of
3: emergency last month. Akela, why did Biden make this speech now? I think the timing of the speech is is definitely significant because we have seen very Little substantive policy out of Biden, the Biden administration for the last two years. Sort of his first day in office, he introduced this proposal that quickly died in Congress. But he has really done little to revisit that. And so this comes up before Biden's visit to Mexico next week, where he'll be meeting. He'll be meeting with the Prime Minister of Canada um, and the President of Mexico. So it simply made sense for him to sort of address this since he'll be. Um, there next week. And he'll be in El Paso on, on Sunday to actually visit the border. Um, and so and also because Republicans have made immigration a huge issue and something that they've said that they're going to criticize the Biden administration for in the next two years and pressure them to sort of take action here, especially because there's been this surge of immigration at the border. And Republicans, many of them ran on this issue, especially in border states like Texas, have promised their constituents that they will address this. And so I think Biden is trying to get ahead of some of that rhetoric, but also because of this, this trip that's coming up next week.
0: Well, Benji, I want to get into that GOP critique, because have we seen substantive movement from the GOP on this issue?
2: What we've seen is a lot of gridlock, which is that Democrats and Republicans both have a lot of interests and arguably shared interests in immigration. But it's very hard for them to come together on a deal because they usually have different approaches or when they do have common ground, they get caught up in negotiations. So the big thing for Democrats is that They are concerned about human rights at the border in a way that Republicans are less concerned with in how they approach this. So they want to make sure that there's still protections for asylum seekers and refugees and that the law isn't changed uh, too much. At least there's a lot of Democrats who feel that way. Republicans would favor things that crack down more on the ability of migrants to enter. And when they've come to try to find a bipartisan compromise and other issues that's come up is Democrats, of course, want to deal with vulnerable immigrants who've been here for many, many, many years and who they say deserve a path to citizenship. So the most recent talks in the Senate broke down when um, Kirsten Sinema, who's now an independent, and Tom Tillis, who's a Republican, tried to find some common ground on a bill that would temporarily extend some of the more tough measures that are removing uh, people at the border under Title 42. Uh, But it would also pair it with a version of the DREAM Act, which would protect young undocumented immigrants who've been here many years, and also surge resources to the border to stand up things like new detention centers, but also more quickly and humanely process people who are coming while they're waiting to hear their cases heard or waiting to be uh, placed into a home or work somewhere in the United States. So it's a complicated mess. Politics get in the way every time. Republicans generally don't want to be seen as endorsing bipartisan deals with Democrats at all, especially on the House side, uh, for fear that they might be attacked from the right for looking weak.
0: Well, Biden plans to expand a program that has offered entry and work permits to Venezuelans with sponsorships.
2: If you're trying to leave Cuba, Nicaragua or Haiti, do not just show up at the border. Stay where you are and apply legally from there starting today, if you don't apply through the legal process, you will not
4: be eligible for this new parole program.
0: Josh, put this into some context for us. How drastic of a change is this to the asylum process? You know,
1: I don't, I, you know, I think that Biden is sort of chipping away at a much larger problem by biting off a very small piece of it. I mean, when you look at the overall number of, of people coming across, trying to come across the U.S. border, from Mexico Cubans Haitians and Nicaraguans are really not a very big percentage of them i think the the much bigger problem uh, or issue is is people coming from other parts of central america guatemala Other countries and from Mexico that that um, are really it's sort of a forced migration issue and I think that that's something that he's going to have to deal with a lot lot more significantly I think that the the number of people involved in in what Biden's talking about now is about thirty thousand people per month from the four nations for two years uh, offering them the ability to work legally um, have eligible sponsors pass vetting and background checks but you know his um, and I just wrote a story about this for the weekend I mean his you know, the, the more substantive things that he's going to be dealing with uh, next week, he's going to be in Mexico City January 9th and 10th uh, for the North American Leaders Summit, uh, is just a much broader set of immigration problems, uh, drug trafficking uh, and human trafficking issues uh, with regard to the Mexican drug cartels, fentanyl and so forth. So, you know, I think that they're announcing this now to sort of uh, take credit for a very small victory when they have a lot more issues to contend with.
0: Akela, what more have you heard from the Biden administration about how they plan to tackle immigration reform this term?
3: I think I think the expansion of this program is, is pretty significant because it's something that um, people sort of speculated was going to happen. This program originally was just for Venezuela, where um, the U.S. has seen pretty large numbers of migration. And so I think people are hoping that this program will be expanded further to more countries. Um, But another issue that some people in the Biden administration, um, especially Secretary Walsh of Labor, have said is, you know, the country is dealing with a labor shortage and potentially immigrants could be um, sort of a pool that they could tap to sort of fill some of these jobs, especially jobs that don't require a college degree, um, are in the labor sector. Um, and so that they're hopefully going to pursue that. And, and it could potentially address sort of this economic headwind that the country is still having.
0: Well, the panel investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol released their final report right before Christmas. Josh, this report is 800 pages. How much of your holiday break did you spend reading it and what stood out for you? Uh,
1: it's 845. Five
0: pages to, to be exact, exact and,
1: um, depending <laughs> on what the format is that you. Uh, and I actually printed it out, so Ooh. thanks to my um, my office printer, I feel bad for the trees that I killed doing that. But um, no, I mean this is a remarkable document. Um, you know, I, I've made some parallels between this and the the 11 commission report, um, which I also covered those hearings. Um, I think that you know there's a lot of disclosures in this. I think what was more interesting. Uh, Than the actual report itself, which is very dense, it's very hard to read, um, were the transcripts that came out, and those are many, many, many thousands of pages worth of transcripts. The committee, uh, basically, which sunset on January third, had to get these out be- because when the Republicans took over, you know, they said they were going to dismantle the committee and basically try to undo all of the work that they'd done. And so this is a committee, you know, the House Select Committee, that spent eighteen months. Uh, investigating what happened on January 6th uh, the events leading up to it and what happened afterwards uh, they did more than a thousand interviews most of them sworn testimony from people under oath and you know they they paint a remarkable picture of what happened um, we did a story uh, just yesterday about you know all of the people in Trump's inner circle uh, and how they changed their their views of the president on January 6th uh, hope Hicks you know, who was one of his most loyal aides, basically said, um, you know, that because of the actions and his refusal to stop the rioters on January 6th, that it makes us all look like domestic terrorists now. Um, We saw a lot of uh, new information about Ginny Thomas, you know, the wife of uh, the Supreme Court justice, uh, her meddling in the election efforts to overturn the election. Uh, You know, there were some fun things like how two Trump uh, administration uh, officials recommended that they create a glass box uh, to surround Trump so that he could accompany the protesters to the Capitol to protest on January 6th, sort of like a Pope mobile without the wheels, I guess. So there was a lot of important things in there. There was a lot of um, and sort of just interesting atmospheric details about uh, the efforts to overthrow the election and um, attack the seat of democracy.
0: So what, what happens with this document now, though, Josh?
1: Well, they forwarded it to the Justice Department. They recommended four criminal charges for Trump uh, and and uh, at least one other person, um, uh, a former Justice Department official who was also participating in the alleged coup. Um, you know, it's up to the Justice Department to decide whether they want to file criminal charges. Um you know, I think the Justice Department, um, after about a year and a half of, of not working very aggressively to do this, now that there's a special counsel in place, I think that they're going to be looking at that. I don't know if they essentially needed uh, this 845-page report from the House Committee to decide who to prosecute, if anybody. But, you know, I think that the um, the, the sad thing about it is that the 845-page document, however dense it is is an important document. Um, It was designed more to how to figure out how to prevent something like this from happening again. But now that the Republicans are in control of the House, I think they're going to basically throw it in the trash and do whatever they can to try to uh, upend that and change the narrative and show that these were just, you know, uh, as they've called them in the past, tourists who were just maybe getting a little out of control on January sixth.
0: And the J six report recommended creating a quote formal mechanism for evaluating whether to bar Trump from holding future federal office. The former president is also facing a criminal investigation from the Department of Justice. Akela, how could this recommendation and in the investigation impact Trump's twenty twenty four presidential ambitions, if at all?
3: And I think that's the that's the question here: is are voters paying attention? to these deliberations? And are they concerned that Trump could potentially get some sort of charge that bars him from running from office permanently? Um, And and what we've seen with Trump throughout the years is he's faced scandal after scandal, and he's sort of still retained his support. But this time, it does feel, you know, it does feel a little bit different this time, especially with the DOJ also investigating these classified documents that were held at Mar-a-Lago, Um, And polls are starting to show that, you know, this contender, Ron DeSantis, who has not yet formally announced for 2024, but is widely speculated to um, sort of throw his name in the hat. Um, But he's sort of gaining ground with Republicans, Um, but we'll ultimately have to see whether or not Trump sort of retains his base. But one thing's for sure, he's still very, very popular But it will come down to whether voters care or not about these legal challenges he's facing. We
0: got this text from Adam in Idaho. Why doesn't anyone focus on the money made by promoting Stop the Steal? Is it possible that duping conspiracy supporters into donating was more a financial motivator than reversing the election? The Trump campaign raised more than $250 million as part of the supposed Stop the Steal effort. Talk us through that piece of the investigation and whether those people could face criminal charges.
1: Yeah, I think it's a huge part of the investigation. Um, and that actually is something that I think they could be vulnerable on, because I think it would be seen as something that's less politically motivated than, you know, charging Trump with um, uh, seditious conspiracy. Uh, that's one of the things that we found in the transcripts was Don Jr., uh, when asked about what happened to the $250 million, said, I don't know, because they've only identified $10 million that was spent
0: on the Stop the Steal lawsuits. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news and a reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more after the break. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. Buffalo Bills player Demar Hamlin remains in a Cincinnati hospital after suffering cardiac arrest during Monday night's game against the Cincinnati Bengals. The 24-year-old safety for the Bills collapsed on the field shortly after a tackle. But some good news today. The Bills tweeted: Demar's breathing tube was removed overnight. He continues to progress remarkably in his recovery. He FaceTimed into the team meeting to talk to players and coaches, and what he said to his teammates: "Love you, boys." Well, the Bills have provided a much-needed escape for Buffalo, which has experienced a very difficult year. Ten people died in a racist shooting at a supermarket there last May, and the bills bengals game this week happened just after a holiday winter storm left at least 39 people dead. Benji, how is the city recovering from this storm? Well, part of it is just trying to figure out what went wrong. Um, Buffalo is obviously a city that's no
2: stranger to snow. You know, it's a place that gets famous for extremely harsh winters. Um, So they've brought in um, NYU to investigate essentially and make recommendations and figure out where things went wrong. Um, Some of this is just circumstances. There's a sense that this was a uniquely terrible combination of massive amounts of snow with extremely intense winds. And sometimes they get one or the other, but the combination made it extremely hard for rescuers to reach people and for people to get out of dangerous situations.
0: Well, we saw more extreme weather this week on the West Coast, where California Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency. Yesterday, more than 35 million people, or about 90 per- percent of the state, was under a flood watch. Uh, Kayla, what type of weather event is
3: causing this flooding
0: throughout the state?
3: I think speaking to extreme weather events in general in the past year, and the past couple years, frankly, it's definitely climate change is is a key factor there. And it's from from the administration, from scientists, are, they're saying that this is causing, you know, increased instances of flooding. We've know wildfires, flooding um, all across the country, and so um, these are these are things that I think a lot of politicians, governors, are really taking into consideration when they're going to the administration and asking for funding and, and asking for these emergency declarations, and they're honestly trying to shore up ways to protect their their states and, and their cities from these kind of weather events going forward. And that's going to be particularly important for states like Florida, for states like California, um, where these instances are just a lot more common. Well, and Benji, in this case,
0: this this bomb cyclone that's hitting California and bringing this weather, how common is it for the state to, to get this much rain this quickly? uh obviously it's not
2: good but it is not totally unprecedented in terms of you know some meter i'll just say this is attributed to normal weather patterns you know like la nina that that every so often cause extreme weather um so you know it's it's not impossible to get this kind of rain and and flooding but obviously they're dealing with a difficult situation and is the state expecting to get a break from this weather
0: pattern soon I don't know. I have to check with the weatherman. <laughs> Which, Benji, you I know a lot. I don't know that. Well, let's turn to some news about abortion access. On Tuesday, the Justice Department said the U.S. Postal Service will still be allowed to deliver prescription abortion pills. This includes to states where abortion is banned following the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Akela, this is a legal opinion. What does that effectively mean?
3: Effectively, the DOJ is, is saying here that... Um People can receive these abortion pills, if you will, by mail, um, basically through this loophole that says um, if the sender does not know that the person receiving it will use it illegally, then um, that basically permits them to send it through the mail. Um, And so this is just also a part of the Biden administration's sort of efforts to kind of find ways of relief for people who are still seeking abortions um, in, in states that now ban that procedure. Um, and so they've they've been trying to find these loopholes here and there um, in various agencies, including the DOJ, and this is just one of them.
0: Josh, could this be challenged by anti-abortion groups? I, I mean, I think it
1: can. I mean, that's one thing to, to note about the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the one that made this ruling. They do try to, you know, I mean, they, they try to put blinders on and, and not look at any political ramifications. They just try to make uh, rulings based on the law. But I think that they're... You know, People are going to be readying challenges to this too. I think that the law is a little bit um, murky. I mean, it's based on um, the Comstock Act, which was a late 19th century law that sought to restrict the mailings of any sex-related materials, including those for contraception or abortion. Um, so I think that there are um, avenues in which to, uh, to appeal this, whether or not that's going to work. Uh, Who knows? But I think it is going to be caught up in the politics of the issue, no matter how much the Office of Legal Counsel tried to avoid it. And of course, being the Biden administration's Justice Department, uh, detractors and opponents are going to be saying that it was a politicized decision.
0: Well, Benji, practically speaking, how much weight will this actually have in places where abortion is restricted? Well, that's really the million
2: dollar question in a lot of ways. Um, States are already trying to look at ways to you know, states that have restricted abortion since the Dobbs decision already are looking at ways to also ban, you know, medication. Now, there may be limits to how much they can restrict um, uh, people getting aid from other states or traveling to other states. That was something that, in the Dobbs decision, uh, the Supreme Court justices hinted was perhaps out of their bounds. They might, they might not look as, as, uh, they might not be as friendly towards those attempts. But it is also a question of how much they can do to stop things when there is widespread access to abortion pills through the mail. It might be a case where not everything is strictly legal, but they're so accessible that it's hard to stop individual people from obtaining them even if they don't leave the state.
0: Well, the FDA is also moving to increase abortion access. On Tuesday, the agency said it will allow retail pharmacies to sell abortion pills with a prescription in the U.S. for the first time. The revision also permanently ends the requirement of in-person doctors' visits to get a prescription that began at the start of the pandemic. Josh, how soon could we see these medications available in pharmacies?
1: Um, you know that 's not clear, I think that it could be fairly quickly, um, and the important thing about this, Jen, is that um, <clears throat> that this regulatory change will potentially hugely expand abortion access um, as the uh, as the Biden administration wrestles with how best to protect abortion rights you know, after the Supreme Court's decision. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, pharmacies will gear up pretty quickly to do this. I think you'll see mail order companies uh, trying to be as aggressive as possible about uh, how how to take advantage of this. Um, I mean, and they can move pretty quickly. So,
0: um, you know, I think that it could happen within probably a couple of months, maybe even sooner. But again, Benji, what does this mean in places where abortion has been banned or restricted? Well, obviously, in places that specifically say you are not allowed to obtain abortion pills.
2: You won't be able to go fill a prescription at you know Walgreens, which has said they'll offer these pills in states where it is legal. But it does just increase the supply that's out there. It, it provides another avenue to access. It lowers a barrier, if you say cross-state lines, to just have to go to a pharmacy, perhaps, perhaps even a major brand pharmacy, rather than have to go through a doctor or to a clinic. Everything is just about a, a question of whether how much in practice red states can restrict abortion versus how much legally they can restrict abortion.
0: We're rounding up the week's top news with Semaphore's Benji Sarlin, Josh Meyer of USA Today, and Bloomberg's Akela Gardner. The leader of the college admissions scandal, William Rick Singer, has been sentenced to more than three years in prison. Benji, take us back to this college admissions scandal. We know Singer was the leader in this, but how exactly did he pull this off? Give us some background.
2: Oh, so this was an extremely elaborate uh, uh, case that involved, I believe it was 55 people who ended up charged. It was kind of like a multi-part scandal, that that uh, scheme that took place across multiple schools, across multiple avenues. One was simply helping people cheat on SATs. Uh, there was a scheme in which people would, uh, via a variety of kind of deceptions and excuses, get put in a favorable testing center where they could help them cheat. Um, then there was this additional angle to it, which is when people were applying to schools, they were allegedly bribing, uh, key official, key officials, especially on the athletic side to basically claim that their, uh, students were a sporting, were an athletic recruit, which would give them favorable status in terms of admissions. So between the two of these things, SAT scores and claiming people falsely were, were, you know, athletic stars, you ended up putting children of the rich and famous into schools where perhaps they did not earn admission.
0: Well, and you mentioned rich and famous. A lot of people may know about this because of the involvement of Full House star Lori Laughlin or Desperate Housewives stars uh, Felicity Huffman. But the scandal was, was bigger than that. How, I mean, how far did it reach and how many people got caught up in it, not just in terms of the, of the rich and famous, but also folks who worked at these colleges and universities, Benji?
2: Well, it, it's at college after college after college, the people involved with this faced Um, you know, uh, allegations, discipline, they had their name dragged through the mud, in some cases, legal charges. So you had a lot of things like individual coaches at places like the University of Texas, or at USC, which is one of the places named in it, or at Wake Forest. Um, So it really just rippled throughout the entire academic system before you even get to the families who were also caught up, many of them accepting plea deals for involving their children in it.
0: Did it result in any substantive changes at some of these schools?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, there are investigations all over the place. I'm sure there were a lot of individual rules put in response in many of these universities.
0: Well, before we wrap up, I want us to touch on Twitter. The social media company is reversing its 2019 ban on political ads on the platform. A- Kayla, what's happening here? Why are they making this change?
3: Yeah. So I think one thing to note for sure is Twitter was sort of viewed as as one of the vehicles that Um, Russia used to influence the 2016 election. And Twitter wasn't alone. It also was other social media platforms like Facebook. And so they put in this measure sort of in in 2019 to say that they would no longer be um, accepting political ads. So now Elon Musk is is basically reversing that policy. And this sort of speaks to really his desperation at this time. His company or or Twitter has really suffered um, under his leadership losing a lot of advertising dollars. And so this could be just one more way that he's looking to shore up more money for Twitter as people are just increasingly skeptical of whether he can lead this platform um, in a manner that does promote free speech, but also protects people from misinformation and disinformation. Well, Twitter also said it would relax their policy behind
0: cause-based ads. Josh, what does that mean and what would that look like?
1: Well, I think that, I mean, so what they said is cause-based ads can... facilitate public conversation around important to- topics. So if that sounds vague to you, that's because it is, I think. And I think, you know, again, what um, Kayla said is that um, a lot of this comes down to advertising. I don't think that Musk is trying to do the public any favors here. He's, I think, just demonstrated uh, one thing for sure since he took over is that he doesn't really consider Twitter to be a public space or a public sphere, As it had been before. So, you know, what cause based advertising means, how they're going to interpret it, uh, whether he actually does want to facilitate public conversation around important topics or not, um, I think that those are things that we'll have to wait and see. Uh, One thing that's important to note though is that he claims that Twitter is losing $4 million a day and their political ads were less than about $3 million a year, at least in 2018. So, this is sort of a drop in the bucket. In terms of what Musk needs, but, you know, I guess he needs every bit of revenue he can find. So, um, you know, it it does make you wonder what is driving decisions uh, at Twitter, uh, if anything, or if it's just sort of random decisions by Musk, um, when he's just, you know, got his hands full and doesn't really know what to do with it.
0: Well, we'll leave our conversation there. But before we wrap, I want to give each of you a chance to talk about a story you're either watching very closely or a story you think didn't get enough attention this week. Benji, I'll I'll come to you. Well, I would recommend uh, everyone
2: check out Semaphore.com and especially our newsletter Principles, um, where one story that I think has been underplayed a little bit is in all the chaos in the House is January 6th. It's the anniversary today. And we have some excellent coverage, including from our Hill reporter, Kadia Goba, who was there that day hiding out in an office with Ruben Galejo, the congressman. And they talk about their experience together in today's edition.
3: Okay, in a sentence or two? I would say this coverage around Damar Hamlin has just been really interesting, especially given that we've seen so much concussion related news. But having this been, you know, a heart related issue, I think it's really sparking a lot of interesting conversations in sport about what's healthy and and really about whether or not this, this sport can be sustainable. Josh, you get the last word.
1: Well, I mean, I have a story coming out on Sunday, uh, usatoday.com, about how this summit meeting between Biden and Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador uh, is important, especially when it uh, comes to the politically fraught U.S.-Mexico drug war. I and mean, we have 1, 100,000 people or more dying of fentanyl overdoses every year. And this has been a crisis that's been largely unaddressed in terms of stopping the traffickers and the drug cartels from bringing the stuff across the border. So, um, you know, I, I'm eager to see if they can come to any uh, agreement on what to do about it.
0: That's Josh Meyer. He's the domestic security correspondent for USA Today. Benji Sarlin was with us. He's Semaphore's Washington bureau chief and Akela Gardner, the White House reporter for Bloomberg. Thanks to you all. Back to the news roundup in a moment. But before we move on, some remembrances.
4: I'm so-
0: Singer Anita Pointer of the Pointer Sisters died in her Beverly Hills home on Saturday. The cause of death was cancer. Anita sang lead vocals on most of the 70s pop group's biggest hits, including I'm So Excited. I I the sisters won a Grammy in 1974 for Best Country Vocal Performance for the song Fairy Tale. Later on, they'd perform the song at the Grand Ole Opry.
4: I'll pack up. All my things
5: and
0: walk away. Anita was 74.
5: I don't want to hear another word you have to say.
0: Earth, Wind & Fire drummer Fred White has also passed away this week. The cause and place of death have not been disclosed.
3: Do you remember?
0: Born in Chicago, Fred began his career as a musician in his teens, playing in clubs around the city. He eventually joined Earth, Wind & Fire with his siblings in the mid-70s, and he was the heartbeat of some of the group's most beloved songs. He left the group in the 80s. Fred White was 67. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and this is the International News Roundup. And as ever, we have a lot to get to. Russian state media says a 36-hour ceasefire ordered by President Putin for Orthodox Christmas is underway. Ukraine's president says Russia will very likely use the holiday as cover to halt Ukrainian advances. This comes after the U.S. and Germany laid out their plans to send more weapons to Kyiv. We also have important stories out of Colombia, Venezuela, and China. Joining us for the roundup this week, Nancy Youssef. Nancy is national security correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. Nancy, thanks for being here.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Also with us is Joyce Karam. Joyce is senior news editor at All Monitor. Joyce, it's great to have you. Great to be here, uh, Jen. And Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Amy, welcome back.
6: Happy to be here.
0: So let's jump in. The Kremlin is facing unprecedented criticism from inside Russia. That's after one of the deadliest attacks on its troops since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine more than 10 months ago. The attack took place on New Year's Day. Kiev and Russian bloggers claim the death toll is likely in the hundreds. Russia's defense ministry says Ukraine fired several U.S.-provided HIMARS rockets toward barracks in the partially occupied region of Donetsk. The Russian military has confirmed heavy losses And that's been met with fierce criticism from inside the country. Nancy, as best you know, what happened on January 1st?
4: So at the stroke of midnight, uh, somewhere at least six HIMARS were launched. Four of them um, got past uh, Russian intercepts and were able to hit this uh, vocational school that was being used as a temporary barracks for newly constrained Russian conscripts. And somewhere and the building was completely flattened. And because of that, the death toll was a little unclear. The Ukrainians put the numbers at um, 400 dead, 300 wounded. The official Russian number was 89. It was the deadliest single strike on Russian troops um, since the war began. And so that was met with a lot of criticism, as you noted, from... Russian bloggers at their generals because of the failure to protect these troops. The Russian leadership in response put the blame on the soldiers and said, because they were using cell phones improperly, um, they they gave away their positions and allowed the Ukrainians to strike them and then essentially exposed their location. And I think it was an effort to deflect blame from the Russian military leadership. But it is a strike that was um, shocking for the Russian public, which because of the numbers, because Because of how many were um, able to be hit so easily, the failure of their defenses uh, in in a region, uh, in the Donetsk region, where many thought as um, more uh, under Russian control. So all of those led to the highest level of criticism we've seen um, inside Russia about the conduct of the war.
0: Well, here's Sergei Sevrikov. He said other soldiers' remains were found in the rubble of that school. But as you said, Nancy, he blames soldiers themselves for the attack.
3: At the present time, a
0: commission is working to investigate the circumstances of the incident. But it is already
2: obvious that the main reason for what happened was the switching on and mass use by personnel, contrary to the ban in place, of mobile phones in a strike zone accessible to enemy weapons. This factor allowed the enemy to track and
0: determine the coordinates of the soldier's location for a missile strike. Severkov is a general lieutenant with the Russian army. Amy, tell us more about the response from inside Russia.
6: Well, one of the interesting things I think that's going to be interesting to watch after this attack is that a lot of these troops actually came from a single city a lot came from the russian city of samara along the volga and so instead of these losses being felt kind of distributed across the country there's going to be you know an intensification of of grief and of outrage over this attack i think in this one city and so it's going to be interesting to see whether you know whether that kind of galvanizes um any kind of further opposition to the war amongst families there um and uh over these troop losses. Um, I mean, the other thing to just build on what Nancy said—that this, you know, this attack, you know, whilst it was the most deadly, it follows a very familiar pattern that we've seen throughout the war, which is, you know, Russian operational incompetence, they had a huge number of troops concentrated in a single location, making them sitting ducks, essentially, um, you know, there are reports that they were using cell phones, that, you know, it's hard to verify, but that does seem to, you know, fit with what we know about poor discipline amongst the ranks of, of, of Russian troops. And so essentially, the Ukrainians were just, you know, fairly easily able to take advantage of, uh, of, of these Russian uh, shortcomings.
0: Well, Russia's attacks on Kyiv continued over the holiday weekend. But on Tuesday, Ukraine Air Force spokesperson Yuri Inat explained to NBC News why he thinks Russia could be exhausting its stockpile of missiles.
4: On the drones, it depends on how many Iran would be able to supply to Russia and how strong Western sanctions would be in reducing that supply. On the missiles, we see from military intelligence data that now Russians are using their untouched spares and that they are also running out of ballistic missiles.
0: Joyce, to what extent is that assessment shared by the U.S.?
5: Uh, Jen, uh, this is actually, this matches what we hear from U.S. officials and what British ofis- officials have said uh, publicly about uh, Russia's training uh, to produce enough uh, long-range missiles and is thus uh, now more reliant on other weapons, including uh, Iranian uh, Iranian drones. Uh, just to give you some uh, statistics that the Ukrainians uh, released this week, they said that on December. December uh, 31st, uh, Russia uh, r- Russia's strikes included 20 uh, cruise uh, missiles, whereas before that. It was 70. Uh, There is also, uh, they they are saying that uh, Moscow has so far used 660 Iranian main drones and is expecting uh, more uh, to come from uh, its, its, you know, one of two uh, allies, military allies in this conflict, which is Iran and uh, North Korea. Those are the only countries that are... uh, Arming Russia in uh, in in Ukraine. Uh, the other thing, you know, when we look more uh, broadly at the at the conflict and at what's happening, uh, it's more and more looking like a war of attrition. Uh, Russia remains on uh, the back foot. Uh, it's it's. It's going to be a year next month, and there isn't major uh, progress that it's making, even even in the uh, in the east. Uh, this is, as Amy and Nancy said, this is exposing Putin to questions inside Russia. It's not to a point where where we could say, oh, there is a, po- a popular uprising against uh, the war, but there are definitely questions about incompetence, about the performance of the Russian uh, military. Uh, And, uh, you know, the attack that uh, we're discussing, I mean, these are, uh, there's been reports that these are fresh, young uh, uh, draft military drafts that uh, came from uh, Russia. And some of them were actually on the phone with their parents uh, while the uh, attack happened.
0: Well, Nancy, we mentioned earlier the start of a 36-hour ceasefire ordered by President Putin. How is Ukraine responding to that order?
4: Well, they basically called it hypocrisy, that they don't believe it, that this is an attempt by Russia to halt uh, gains by the Ukrainians, momentum by the Ukrainians, and um, essentially rejected. And in fact, we've already seen evidence of fighting in this period, what is supposed to uh, mark the start of the ceasefire. Um, And I should note, my, my... I couldn't help but think of Syria where during the war there we heard often um, from Russia about calling for uh, ceasefires and throughout that that was also treated um, quite poorly in that violence continued and so if history is any precedent in that conflict it's hard to see a scenario where those strikes are um, ceased uh, because of the ceasefire and not instead maybe perhaps treated as an opportunity for the Russians to regroup. That's certainly how the Ukrainians see it. And the evidence on the field suggests that it is not as of yet holding.
0: Well, we touched on Russia's efforts to restock its missile stockpile. President Biden spoke this week to Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz. What did those leaders agree to send to Ukraine, Nancy?
4: To hear later uh, Friday uh, in, from the United States is the decision to send Bradley fighting vehicles. These are vehicles that um, essentially can carry troops in. Some of them allow you to launch um, stingers and other weapons. And the idea of Bradleys and vehicles like, like that, Germany sending its equivalent to Ukraine, is that it gives the Ukrainians the ability to maneuver on the battlefield. So, Bradleys or any sort of weapon system in and of itself can't change the trajectory of the war. But if used correctly, the Ukrainians can deploy tanks in places. Uh, For example, let's say the Ukrainians were able to launch a strike on a Russian position. They can then move in their troops in armored vehicles closer to the scene and sort of finish the results of a, of a, of a, far strike. And so the idea of the Bradleys and tanks like them it allows the Ukrainians to potentially close in on positions. And so we've seen now a new chapter in terms of the types of systems the United States and its allies are providing. And and because we hadn't seen these kinds of vehicles before that up until this, Ukrainians were often doing that in their own civilian vehicles. So this could be a market change, but only if the Ukrainians are able to deploy them effectively. Amy, you wrote this for
0: Foreign Policy this week with your colleague Robbie Grammer. Quote Russia and Iran have formed a partnership of convenience against Western powers for decades, but that relationship has historically been tinged by an undercurrent of distrust and wariness. But the war in Ukraine may be changing all that, pushing Moscow to embrace Iran as one of its top foreign partners. Amy, what's changed?
6: so this is just one of the kind of fascinating and deeply concerning knockoff effect knock-on effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine I mean the relationship before the war between Tehran and Moscow was already deepening you know these two countries found common cause in Syria where they both intervened in support of the embattled president there Bashar al-Assad but it was as you said it was a complicated relationship and it kind of had its constraints there was not a lot they could do for each other economically and Russia is also bound its relationships with uh, with Iran's foes in the region, the the, the Gulf Arab states and and Israel. Um, But since the war, you know, that relationship has deepened and is now, you know, analysts tell us, closer than ever. Um, And as Russia has struggled with ammunition, as we discussed um, in the earlier segment, you know, Tehran has stepped in and providing Moscow with a ready supply of these cheap-to-make, easy-to-use, but very lethal kamikaze drones, which have been used in these devastating waves of attacks that we've seen on Ukrainian infrastructure. And so this has, of course, raised questions of, okay, you know, Russia is now very dependent on Iran, so what is Iran getting in return? And there's real concerns that, you know, these two countries are already looking to deepen their economic ties, to build economic corridors, which would essentially uh, allow a kind of an economic corridor of trade between the two countries, which is beyond the reach of Western sanctions. Iran, like Russia, is is incredibly isolated by Western sanctions. Um, But also, uh, more pressingly, on the military front, you know, Russia does have some pretty high-tech systems, such as fighter jets, S-400 air defense systems. And so that's being very closely watched as to what Iran is going to get in return for its support for Moscow in this war. Well,
0: Joyce, on that closer relationship with Iran, you wrote this week about its impact on what, if anything, is left of the nuclear deal. What can you tell us about that?
5: Uh, no, for sure, uh, Jen. This is another uh, perfect storm that's brewing uh, you know, between the Western countries uh, and Iran. We've seen this week Axios reported that uh, Jared uh, uh, Blanc is uh, leaving the State Department. He would be the third uh, U.S. official to leave the, the Iran negotiating uh, team. What we're seeing and uh, what Al-Monitor reported uh, this week is the Europeans and the Americans are very reluctant uh, to re-engage and to move forward on the nuclear deal. And a big uh, thorn in that is uh, Iranian armament uh, of uh, of uh, Russia. So, uh added to that are internal factors within uh, within Iran, uh, you know, basically the, the protests that, that continue uh, to happen inside Iran. There were even some uh, this morning. Uh, so uh, what the US, the Europeans are grappling uh, with now is a much more uh, complicated picture uh, with Iran, its involvement in Russia, internal uh, protests, and that's giving everybody, uh, especially at the White House, uh, cold feet when it comes to uh, engaging uh, with Iran on the nuclear deal. Uh, the talk is about Plan B, uh, rolling out of uh, more sanctions, pressuring Iran on all these issues, uh, but including mostly its uh, its close alliance now, military alliance with uh, with Russia. Well
0: let's pivot now to China. Mike Ryan is emergencies director at the World Health Organization. At a briefing earlier this week, he issued a warning about the spread of COVID. We believe that the the current numbers being being published from from China underrepresent
1: the true impact of the disease in terms of hospital admissions, in terms of uh, ICU admissions and
0: particularly in terms of death. Amy, what is the Chinese government reporting about COVID within its borders?
6: Not a lot, or certainly not a lot that appears, to be honest. Um, As you mentioned, the World World Health Organization has accused China of under-reporting deaths amidst this huge surge in cases that we've seen in the country since they dropped their zero-COVID policy. The most recent data from the Chinese authorities claims that there have been only 22 deaths in the past two weeks, which just seems highly implausible given the the rate of transmission that we know is underway in many Chinese cities. And just these scenes we're seeing of, of overcrowding Crowded hospitals and and overcrowded uh, um, uh, mortuaries, as well. Um, What China has done is it has, you know, as Russia did at the peak of the pandemic, they've resorted to kind of authoritarian maths, imposing very strict, narrow definitions on what exactly constitutes a COVID death. So it's only people who die from respiratory causes, from pneumonia, whilst they have COVID, that are deemed a COVID death, and so that. Is thought to leave out, you know, a, a huge swath of people that, that may be dying as a result of the virus, but but don't meet that criteria. The World Health Organization's guidance is to count excess deaths, any deaths over and above what would normally be expected at this time of year in the country, um, to, to 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 provide a more kind of holistic overview of what's happening. But the other thing that they're the Chinese authorities are not sharing um, or being terribly forward with is is tracking, you know, where the virus is, you know. How many people are dying, and this has important ramifications for tracking the emergence of any new variants in the country. China has over a billion people, little herd immunity, and so as the virus makes its way through the population, it's not out of the question that new and concerning variants could emerge. And this, of course, has come this week as the World Health Organization has flagged yet another new subvariant of Omicron, which is thought to be the most transmissible yet, um, and is expected to kind of you know overtake in the next waves coming in the United States. So a lot of reasons to be concerned about a lack of accurate data coming out of China.
0: If you want to learn more about the current state of COVID in the U.S., you can turn to our website, the1a.org, and check out our latest vaccination nation. Now, against that backdrop in China, many nations have imposed restrictions on travelers from the country. Japan, the U.S., France, and India are among the countries that now require negative coronavirus tests from Chinese visitors. On Wednesday, the European Union strongly encouraged its 27th. Member nations to do the same. Joyce, how was China responding to these travel restrictions?
5: The, the response is not is not well because uh, China has itself, you know, been in a state of. Uh I don't want to say in a state of denial, but they're not giving the the actual figures about what's happening uh, inside uh, inside the country. Uh, but we're we're seeing, you know, increasingly countries are reacting to China the same way that uh, you know when COVID was surging across the world in uh, 2021. Uh, so the situation uh, we're looking at is there is a lot of skepticism about what China is saying. The fact that the uh, World Health Organization Criticized China. That's very rare. I mean, uh, the WHO did not uh, shy away from such criticism throughout uh, the pandemic. But the the numbers that China is putting out uh, on on the COVID deaths uh, are just just don't add up. I mean, videos uh, that we are seeing that are coming from China they show hospitals full, uh, they show crematoriums uh, are full. It's even worse in rural areas. And when you look at the numbers that are coming from China, China, they've they've reported that only 25 people have died since December uh, 1st. Uh, Other organizations, including, for example, uh, Airfinity, it's uh, a British health uh, data uh, uh, organization, their estimate is 9,000 people uh, are probably dying each day. Uh, And China, so this discrepancy is leading a lot of countries, including uh, the ones that you mentioned, including Israel, including Qatar, uh, to take measures and enforce, you know, COVID testings or other travel, um, uh, you know, regulations for those coming uh, from China.
0: Meta is in trouble in Europe. The European Union fined Facebook's parent company more than $400 million for privacy violations. It's also banned Facebook from forcing users in the European Union to accept personalized ads based on their online behavior. The EU is known for having some of the world's strictest online privacy laws. Nancy, what laws did Meta violate?
4: So basically they concluded, this group concluded that, that, you know, that very lengthy terms of service agreement you sign before you join one of these apps In there is language that they say um, effectively means that users have to decide to either allow their data to be used for these sort of personalized ads that you get, or they can't use the social media service altogether. And what this ruling said is that there needs to be um, more choice, essentially, for users to stop their personal data, their, their browsing history, to be used to... ...before they can use the app. And so that's what led to these fines against Meta for um, Instagram and for Facebook. And while on the face of it, it could potentially affect um, not only Europe's use of uh, these apps... ...but in the United States as changes in Europe are likely to come to the United States... ...it's very hard to sort of um, bifurcate uh, usage between, between countries... The challenge is that this has been um, a case that's been pending since 2018 and some worry that the length of time that it took to reach the decision suggests that the group doesn't have as much weight as some had hoped. And Meta has already said that it plans to appeal this and that could lead to a years-long process. Under the law, these changes have to be made in the next three months, but one could see legal proceedings delaying that. But it really brought to the surface... Frustrations about um, how these laws are enacted. The U.S., for example, doesn't have the kinds of um, protections that that Europe does. There isn't a sort of federal data privacy enactment law that that you see in the kind of group that you have in Europe, and so it was really the first example. Of a case where there was an attempt to create a kind of regional, in this case, EU um, format to, to put more regulation on how your private data is shared um, with, with um, um, ad companies. And, and, and I should also note that should this go through, it has a, the possibility of fundamentally changing the business model for groups like Meadow that depend so heavily on these personalized ads for their revenue.
0: Let's turn now to the United Kingdom's new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. On Wednesday, he made his first speech of the year, and in it he promised citizens five things. First,
2: we will halve inflation this year to ease the cost of living and give people financial security. Second, we will grow the economy, creating better paid jobs and opportunity right across the country. Third we will make sure our national debt is falling so that we can secure the future of public services. Fourth, NHS waiting lists will fall and people will get the care they need more quickly. Fifth, we will pass new laws to stop small boats making sure that if you come to this country illegally, you are detained and
0: swiftly removed. Amy, how attainable are these goals during his term?
6: It's going to be hard to tell because he didn't actually lay down much in the way of concrete targets in these in this speech. I mean, one of the goals, the first one about uh, having inflation, does seem to be somewhat achievable within the course of the next year. And whether or not that has anything to do with Rishi Sunak's government. Remains to be seen. I mean, inflation is already on its way down in the UK. But for the other goals he mentioned on the economy, on NHS waiting lists, and on immigration, you know, they were pretty vague, and there was most most importantly, they were lacking any kind of concrete targets um, with which to hold him account. but it's important, you know, the speech comes as, as Rishi Sunak, Sunak is really still kind of trying to introduce himself to the country. He took, he took uh, he came to power late last year after an incredibly chaotic period in British politics. So he's trying to kind of introduce himself to the nation at the same time whilst, whilst handling this myriad of crises. You know, I was in the UK over the holidays and there was an incredible wave of strikes in really critical industries of postal workers, NHS staff, border guards, more strikes to come from, from rail workers, teachers and civil servants. And so, you know, Rishi Sunak right now is the very definition of kind of really kind of trying to, to rebuild a boat while he's at sea of handling all of these simultaneous crises, And of course, whilst looking ahead to elections within the next two years and trying to kind of salvage, uh, salvage the vote for the Conservative Party. Well, next
0: to South America, where we've been watching a few stories, in Colombia, there's been some back and forth on the status of a national ceasefire. On New Year's Eve, President Gustavo Petro announced on Twitter that the country's five largest armed groups had agreed to a six-month truce. But on Tuesday, the National Liberation Army, or ELN, rejected the claims, saying it hadn't been consulted on any such plan. Nancy, what was the ceasefire, and why did Petro make this announcement?
4: Well, that's the key question because it, it seems so hopeful that at the start of the year that an agreement with the National Liberation Army, the ELN, the biggest of those groups, that had agreed to a, a ceasefire was quite promising and met with a lot of optimism. And yet within a matter of hours, the group said, we never reached that agreement. To your question, there's sort of two theories about why the presidency made this announcement. One is that they had uh, misunderstood, that they were bad at negotiating, that they didn't appreciate who they were dealing with, that there was a misunderstanding in the talks. And the other more sinister um, explanation is that there was an effort to um, pressure the the ELN to agree to a ceasefire, that if they announced it, it was sort of force their hand to agree to uh, an agreement. A, a, a ceasefire um and this is a president who came into office on the promise of ending um the 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 violence and bringing renewed peace to to the country and so it's not clear which is it but but the result either way, is that the prospect of reaching a deal became much harder because. Um, there's now an element of arguably distrust and confusion and I, I think from the presidency side they realize that they are dealing with a group that is much more formidable than perhaps they had realized and from the ELN perspective that th- that they are uh, in a position where they are negotiating with someone who might not be – um, as capable as um, may, many had thought in terms of reaching this deal. And so going forward, I think it's going to be much harder to reach these deals at a time when we've seen a surge in violence. But it it took um, Colombia from um, great enthusiasm to sort of dash hopes um, about trying in six decades or at least quell six decades of fighting. Close to two and a half
0: million Venezuelans are now living in Colombia. Most have fled due to their home country's economic and political turmoil. Relations between the two countries are warming, but Venezuela is facing its own problems. There are two governments in the country, one of socialist Nicolas Maduro, who is not recognized by the United States, and the other, the opposition National Assembly. That was, until this week, led by Juan Guaido, who was recognized by the U.S., but no more. Amy, why was Guaido replaced, and who filled his spot?
6: Well, Guaido has been the face of the Venezue- Venezuela's often pretty factuous opposition since 2019, which, when he invoked the country's constitution to claim that he was the legitimate de jure president following presidential elections, which were, were widely regarded to be fraudulent. And for a long period after that, you know, he really much... He, For a time, he was kind of a cause celebre around the world. He was recognized by dozens of countries, including the U.S., much of Latin America, and the European Union as Venezuela's legitimate president instead of uh, the country's leader, Nicolás Maduro. Um, But as often happens with opposition movements, and particularly those under intense pressure and those forced into exile like the Venezuelan opposition movement, you know, it just it just was incredibly difficult for him to get anything off of the ground. You know, Maduro is still there. If anything, he's consolidated his grip on power, and you know, and, you know, th- th- there was infighting amongst the opposition. He was kind of unable to unite them on on this our overarching goal. And so the decision earlier this week was, you know, I think a decision to to move on from Guaido to realize that this wasn't working and to kind of look for a fresh leadership. So the opposition National Assembly is set to meet shortly. They they meet over Zoom because many of them are. Now in exile um, to select a new leader, but I think it's going to be some time until we have, you know, or, or we may never have a figure who has quite the same kind of, uh, at least initial kind of rallying power as as Guaido had in, in in that moment in 2019.
0: Is Guaido's exit a temporary move, or or do you think we'll see more of him uh, moving forward, Amy?
6: That's a good question. I mean, I think it. It remains to be seen what his next moves are going, to, are going to be. I mean, he's certainly the most recognizable face of the Venezuelan opposition, and he still does. He still does have some, you know, clout both within within his own party, but. His 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 loss in this vote amongst the amongst the opposition legislature was pretty overwhelming. I mean, something like uh, a huge portion of the votes were against him. So I think the Venezuelan opposition have made it clear that they want to move on from Guaido, but it remains to be seen whether whether he is also ready to move on himself.
0: Well, briefly, in Mexico on Thursday, officials announced the capture of a son of the imprisoned drug kingpin Joaquin Guzman. Nancy, why was this arrest important just days before Mexico hosts President Biden?
4: Well, because he is the son of El Chapo, who we've heard about, and he's the head of one of the largest drug trafficking organizations in the world, and his arrest, he was briefly detained uh, in 2019 and let go because of fear of violence, Um, and his arrest this time has spurred a tremendous amount of violence, at least 29 police and security officials killed, there were shots fired near an airplane as it was taking off, and passengers were ducking. It's created a tremendous amount of instability. And this comes as President Biden is expected to arrive in Mexico City uh, next week to discuss security. And here is a situation that really uh, epitomizes the security challenges that Mexico is facing. And so there's the impact on sort of drug trafficking. There's the impact on security in Mexico broadly. and, And it really just brought to the fore the challenges that the region is facing. The other thing is it's not even clear, just to give you a sense of the level of instability that has been created, the president Announced that despite the U.S. Uh, request for extradition, that they won't do it quickly in, a, in, in an effort to really try to quell the violence spurred by gangs um, who, who see this arrest as a threat to, to a very powerful drug organization.
0: Well, let's shift now to news out of Iran. The country released actress Taraneh Ali-Dousti from jail this week. Uh, the 38-year-old was arrested nearly three weeks ago for criticizing Iran's crackdown on anti-government protests. Ali-Dousti isn't the only Iranian celebrity to speak out against the government. Amy, what do we know about why she was jailed?
6: So she was jailed for posting um, messages to Instagram in support of the protests, criticizing this this very violent crackdown that we've seen from the government in response to to protests in recent months. Um, she was imprisoned in in Tehran's notorious Evin prison for for three weeks. Um, since she's now been released on bail, but it's what's well, not clear yet. It has not emerged in, in reporting uh, from Iran as to whether she has been charged with anything or, or whether she's going to be forced to, to stand trial as a result.
0: A more than nineteen thousand people. People have been arrested for protesting at least five hundred sixteen people have been killed that count is from the human rights activist news agency uh, Joyce these protests have been going on for months. What lies ahead for Iran uh,
5: they are and they are continuing perhaps not in the in the same steam that we've uh, we've seen when they started in September uh, and October and they are but they are there and it's unclear if the Iranian government uh, knows how to respond to these protests. In the case of uh, uh, Ali Dusti, the 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 actress that that was released, uh, you can tell from the videos of her that she was actually not wearing. Uh, the ha- the headscarf. Uh, we're seeing, uh, it was interesting, we're seeing videos coming out from uh, Iranian uh, state media this week on the Qasem Soleimani uh, death, talking to people on the streets. Few of uh, those women interviewed were also not wearing uh, uh, the headscarf. So is the government officially uh, reversing that? That policy in response to the pressure uh, from the uh, the protests, it's, it's uh, not clear what we have. Is uh, anecdotal, uh, uh, you know, tips from uh, from Iran that there has been some uh, changes, but those are not uh, enough to uh, to quell uh, the the protests. It seems that uh, you know because of the social issues, because of the economic issues, because what we've discussed uh, you know, sanctions and Iran's relations uh, to Russia. That the year ahead uh, will be a tough one for uh, the Iranian uh, government, for the Iranian. Uh, regime, uh, on uh, on set of issues, uh, and uh, we'll have to wait and see how it responds to uh, these challenges.
0: Nancy, I'm curious to hear from you as well, what you're watching for in the coming year. In in 2022, as we were watching the story unfold, uh, each of you said over and over again, this story isn't going away. I'm really curious about what's going to happen next. What do you think is going to happen next?
4: Well, I wouldn't dare predict, but I'll tell you what I'm watching for, because I think the the thing that we've seen with uh, movements like this in Arab Spring and, and most recently Iran is the ability of social media to mobilize large crowds of people around causes, around democracy uh, promotion. And, and, and you can see that there is um, such widespread support for change. I think what I'll we'll be looking for in the next year is how, where is the leadership to guide those those masses, who who emerges as the one who has the plan and the the structure to kind of bring about an enduring change in Iran, because what we've seen on both sides, frankly, is sort of um, um, testing um, the the sort of the limits of of the other side. Joyce was talking earlier about how we're seeing more women not wear the hijab. the The Iranian government, for example, has uh, never said it wasn't going to require it, but it sort of suggested it. And so you can see that both sides are trying to kind of figure out what's the least, and the Iranian government side, what's the least amount of change they can produce. I think the impetus now falls on those who are calling for change to set that boundary firmly with a leadership, with a structure, with a plan. Amy, your thoughts? I mean, among the stories I'm going to be
6: watching for next year, beyond Iran, which I think, you know, as... as uh, as Nancy and Joyce have outlined is, is going to be very much an ongoing story in the year ahead. Um, you know, we're going to continue to be watching the war in Ukraine. I think we, um, I think there's a, there's the potential for a lot of unexpected twists and turns to come from this conflict. I mean, we've already seen a number of surprises in the way the, the way the war has unfolded, you know, the Ukrainians defying expectations and how hard they have fought the Russians defying it, and expectations and how poorly they have fought. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's too early also to discount Russia. Um, much as, you know, we were discussing earlier about they're running low on ammunition, you know, there's very poor operational security they have. The Kremlin has also proven to be, I think, very dastardly often, uh, in its in its military campaigns overseas, um, relying on, you know, unexpected resources such as drawing arms from North Korea and Iran. Um and so I think, you know, they, they may have some surprises left in store for us. We're rounding beyond the- that, you know.
0: Uh, let me just remind our listeners, we're listening uh, to the Friday News Roundup with Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy, Joyce Karam, senior news editor at El Monitor, and Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Let's turn next to Vatican City, where tens of thousands attended the funeral of Pope Emeritus Benedict. In a first for modern times, the current Pope, Pope Francis, led the funeral for his predecessor.
2: Benedetto.
0: Benedict, faithful friend of the bridegroom, may your joy be complete as you hear his voice now and forever. Pope Benedict was um, the first pontiff to resign in almost 600 years. Pope Francis has espoused much more liberal views than his predecessor. Some of you chimed in on this story. One of you shared this. Benedict was at the forefront of efforts to suppress justice for victims of sexual abuse across the globe and pushed for misogynistic and homophobic policies. Good riddance, Nancy, what legacy does Pope Benedict leave behind?
4: I think he leaves a tremendous one and perhaps one he he didn't intend, you know, the first pope to resign in six hundred years, um, and he, and 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 in doing so, I would argue, sort of demystified this this position that seemed um, so mis- so um, uh, I don't know uh, beyond anyone's reach, and all of a sudden, he he really I think personified the the human limitations of 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 these kinds of positions. Um, I, I, and then proceeded for the next eight years to to live in this um, unconventional position. He was a uh, uh, retired and conservative, and his re- successor was the Pope and liberal, and he um, represented for some the more traditional um, conservative Catholic values. I think more than anything in terms of doctrine he put forth this idea that the church is better off to be smaller and adhere to its its values rather than bigger and, and, and but but lose some of um, its. Um, principles in in an effort to uh, have more followers. So I think in terms of that, that might be his simplest legacy. But as as, a listener noted, he was also the first to address um, the sexual abuse cases, the first to offer an apology. And I think the enduring question will be, did he do enough could he have done more? Did he work too much to try to deal with these issues internally when, in fact, they needed to be dealt with more aggressively and outside uh, Vatican channels? Joyce, what do you think Pope Benedict's
0: death means for the Catholic Church moving forward, if anything?
5: I mean, he, he for sure leaves behind a complicated legacy, Jen, uh, uh, to, to his supporters. I mean, they— Many who tens of thousands who uh, attended uh, the funeral. He is the leader who first met with uh, with the victims of uh, sexual abuse. But others point out that he did not pursue accountability, uh, and uh, he uh, he is he, he never held one single bishop accountable and. You know, he went uh, the distance in shielding uh, uh, these abusers. Also what, you know, one listener mentioned on uh, LGBTQ uh, uh, rights, that's that's also uh, unfortunately will tarnish his, uh, his legacy. Uh, to point to his funeral, you know, it's tens of thousands attended, but it's not the same. Uh, it's, it was not as big as, uh, you know, Pope uh, John Paul II, for example, uh, what we're seeing in the aftermath is perhaps a correction course from the Catholic Church that Pope Francis is, is uh, you know, has pivoted, whether it's on uh, the sexual uh, abuse scandals or whether it's on uh, LGBT uh, issue, and offering a more conciliatory tone uh, to the outside world and uh, widening that umbrella uh, for the church.
0: Well, as we wrap, I want to touch on another few. Funer- role that took place this week. Brazilian football legend Pelé was buried in Santos on Tuesday. He was 82. Pelé was a three-time World Cup champion and led Brazil to World Cup titles in 58, 62, and 1970. Nancy, how do you think Pelé will be remembered?
4: Well, um, very simply, one of the greatest football players of all time, ever, and one of the most uh, influential Brazilians of all time, ever. Um, You know, it strikes me that there was sort of a feeling around him that he was godlike and that he he would live on eternally, and I think you could see Brazilians celebrating his impact on, on their country, on their nationalism, but at the same time, wrapping their minds around someone, how do you think of someone who who seemingly will live on forever in Brazilian history, is dying. You could see that in, in, in the scale and scope of the celebrations and also people just wrapping their minds around the idea of this legend, this defining legend, um, had passed away. And I, and I think that's how he will be seen, legendary, um, irreplaceable, um, alleged, and, and someone who, who, who called for change in, in the most um, humble of ways. And, um, and change football, change Brazil.
0: Well, we've got under a minute left here in just a sentence or two. I'd love to hear each of you share a story you think needs more attention. Uh, Joyce, I'll come to you first.
5: Um, for a story, I mean, obviously, I cover uh, the Middle East, so everything that's uh, that's happening there deserves more attention. I, I do think we need to keep an eye on on Iran and what's happening in in the protests in uh, in the coming uh, uh, year ahead. Uh, you know, for the cholera, for example, in northern Syria is, is another one that uh, I'd like to you know, put more focus on in the coming year. And hopefully it'll be happier headlines for us um, all, Jen. Thank you. Amy, briefly? I think Afghanistan is something that we'll continue to watch in the coming
6: year. You know, the story was really uh, pushed out of the headlines by the war in Ukraine. Um, but the the statistics from Afghanistan on on hunger, you know, with 50% of people expecting to face extreme hunger in the next three years um, is, is just incredible. And, you know, We have yet to see what the U.S., uh, I I think, legacy is going to be there and what we
4: still owe the country as well. And Nancy, just a sentence or two? Uh, The U.S. military has conducted um, increasing strikes in Syria against ISIS. There's economic hardship around the region. And I'm wondering if we are seeing the um, possibility of a resurging ISIS, something I'm watching.
0: That's Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, Joyce Karam, Senior News Editor at Al Monitor, and Amy McKinnon, National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy. Thanks to you all. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.